All right. Good morning again. We are in our second week going through the book of Jonah. So we're in uh, chapter two this morning. Um, And while I know um, my wife just prayed, uh, normally I would pray after we read our scripture this morning, but I want to do things a little differently and I want to start with a word of prayer now. And so um, if you guys would, um, let's bow together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we start this off. Um, I'd encourage you to even uh, make this uh, and t- take this opportunity to, to pray that God would, would work in your own heart um, to be able to do uh, whatever it is that he wants to do. So uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive in a little bit. God, thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the truth that it holds, um, for God how you use it to draw us to yourself, to help us know you to a greater level and to be... Um, just more like Christ. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts as you see fit this morning. God, that you would do things that only you can do. And um, God, just that above all else, that uh, your words are what are spoken, um, because your words have the ability to, to, to encourage and to challenge, and mine don't, God, but yours do. And so I pray that your words are spoken today. Um, we just thank you in your name. Amen. All right, so last Sunday, we started our series through the book of Jonah, and this morning, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2. Now, I say chapter 2, there's a little bit of debate over whether chapter 1, verse 17 should actually be the start of chapter 2, um, and so uh, I believe it should be, so that's where we're actually starting is chapter 1, verse 17, because what we see in chapter 1, verse 17 is we see a, a scene shift from the boat to the belly of the fish. Uh, And then 2 verse 1 says, he prays from the belly of the fish. And so uh, we're going to start in Jonah 1 verse 17. Uh, Our title today is rather simple. So last week we talked about Jonah running from God, and here he's praying to God. And so we're going to keep it simple. And as we do, um, I want to ask you to consider a few questions. Um, Maybe things like this. What does your prayer life look like? All right. Consider that. What does your prayer life look like? Is it a normal part of what you do? Um. If not, what has to happen for you to cry out to God? We see this from Jonah. He refuses to cry out for a long period of time in chapter 1. And he finally does in chapter 2 because God upped the ante a little bit. So what does it take for you to cry out to God? What do your prayers consist of? Are they me-focused? Are they God-focused and others-focused? And one of the reasons I ask that is um, we're not going to spend time on this, but an observation from his eight-verse prayer in chapter 2, is that Jonah references himself 23 times in an eight-verse prayer. Um, I'm not saying his focus is off, but there's a chance his focus may be a little bit off, even in this prayer, all right? And so what does, that, what does your prayer life look like? We're going to see what Jonah includes in his prayer in this, but we're also going to see what led to him praying this way. So let's review real quick from last week. So last week was chapter one, story that uh, many of us who have grown up in church know well. Um, So Jonah is a prophet um, that is from Israel, and he prophesies to uh, the evil king uh, Jeroboam uh, prosperity and, uh, you know, positive blessing. And then God asked him to go prophesy to Nineveh uh, in Assyria, which is their enemies, and 
Jonah gets up to go and runs the opposite direction. He tries to go 2,500 miles the opposite way from where God wanted him to go. He gets on this boat with these uh, pagan sailors, and uh, God does what God does. He says, you're not making it 2,500 miles away. I'm stopping you right here. And he puts this giant storm here, one unlike these sailors have ever seen and ever witnessed in their lives before. And they are afraid for their lives, and they cry out to their gods. Their gods don't do anything they cry out uh, to Jonah. They wake him up because he's busy taking a nap. And, uh, and they look at him and they're like, dude, cry out to God. And he doesn't do it because that's the kind of rebellion that Jonah is in at this point. Still says no. Um, he says, but you can kill me. You can throw me over. So he's at the point where that's what he would prefer to happen. And so they're like, we'd rather, keep, we'd rather not, right? So the sailors go. They start rowing all the harder, but God keeps that storm steady and they can't go anywhere else. As a matter of fact, it says the storm gets worse. And so eventually they give in. They throw Jonah overboard, all right? Jonah, at this point, thinks he's done because I'm going to die. I'm, I'm being thrown into the sea. There's this giant storm. I'm done. The, the pagan sailors turn from their little G-gods and begin worshiping the one true God uh, at the end of this and offering sacrifices to him. And then we pick it up in verse 17, and God appoints a great fish, which is also ironic because God also appointed Jonah to a specific task. And here he appoints an animal, a fish, to a specific task to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, okay? And so that leads us to where we are at today. And so here's what I want to ask that we do. Um, it's happened a few times, but it's not something we do consistently, but I would like it to be. Uh, I want to ask that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. So if you would, uh, you're welcome to follow along in your own Bibles or up on the screen. But we're going to read this passage this morning uh, in honor of God's word. Let's stand together. Uh, starting in Jonah 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple." The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so most of us, uh, I think, find a way to pray uh, when we're in our most difficult situations. Um, or maybe that's just me, and I'm ratting myself out. That when things are going really well, I probably spend less time in prayer than when a situation uh, comes up that causes me pain or grief or struggle or I don't know how to handle it or whatever the case is. And, and sometimes these situations God uses to bring me back to him because maybe I've spent too long not spending time in prayer with him. Do you know what I mean? Maybe it's been a minute and God's like, you haven't talked to me for three weeks. It's time. 
Maybe it's something like that. I don't know. What we see here is Jonah in the midst of this terrible situation, right? He's in the belly of a fish. One of the things that we need to remember is that these situations that God either puts us in or allows us to be in are an act of his mercy. And so even sending and appointing this fish is an act of mercy that God shows to Jonah. Sometimes our terrible situation is an act of God's mercy to draw us to him. Now, Jonah himself was willing to die, and he was refusing to go to God, if you remember from chapter 1. And so God used this situation in his mercy to draw Jonah back in. Our passage this morning, I'm just going to keep it simple, is really just about salvation. That's really what the theme of this book is. That's really what the theme of this chapter in this prayer is. It's about salvation and who's responsible for it. It all points back to Jesus. It all points to God the Father. It all points to him. And so here's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at a few things. We're going to look at the circumstances of Jonah's prayer. We're going to look at the content of his prayer. And then we're going to look at the consistent response of God to prayer. And so let's start by looking at his circumstances, all right? So the circumstances of Jonah's prayer. All right, let's take a look. We we have an idea of what this, this is like, okay? And so in chapter 1, Jonah has just disobeyed. He's run the other way. He's been thrown into the sea. And verse 17 tells us that God in his providence, because of his grace and mercy, appoints a great fish to come and swallow Jonah. So Jonah is in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Okay? And so, uh, and we will tackle that a little bit later about that significance. Okay? But over the first six verses, Jonah basically describes what's happening. He describes this situation. All right. It says in verse 2 that he cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. And here's what that means, okay? That Sheol is a place of divine punishment. So the ancient concept of it was that when you went down to the grave, you couldn't escape because bars actually closed in over you to prevent you from escaping. That was the ancient belief associated with the term Sheol. And so when it says uh, that the earth's gates shut behind me and forever in verse 6, that's what it's referring to, or these gates, these bars. And actually what's interesting in here is that the term bar has a double meaning. It can either mean those bars that close behind you or close over you, or it could refer to sandbars at the bottom of the sea, which is where Jonah ended up. So it has a double meaning here to look at. Okay? In verse 3, it says, the waves are sweeping over him. Right? So he starts describing this process of drowning, is what he's doing. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea, and the current overcame me. All your breakers, your billows, your waves, they're sweeping over me. He's engulfed. You go to verse 5. The water engulfed up to his neck. The watery depths overcame him. Seaweed was wrapped around his head. It was like he was wrapped up almost like a, a burial garment to where he couldn't move. He couldn't do anything to help himself escape. There was nothing there. And this is going to date me a little bit, but I was a 90s kid. And so the first thing it makes me think of is actually the scene from the movie Aladdin, where he's tied up, he's got the chains around his ankles, and they throw him into the water. And the only possible way of escape he has, because he can't do it on his own, is by a miracle. That, I mean, that's as close as I can come to in my mind. That's the first thing I think of, but that's what it takes for Jonah. It takes a miracle. For him to get out of this, this situation. So he is engulfed, overcome by the waves, by the storm. He's sinking down deeper and deeper. And if you remember from last week, the significance of the repetition of the word down, he's getting further and further away from God. He's going down to the bottom. Because what happens when you get down further and further into the sea, it gets darker and darker and darker. So Jonah finds himself in this situation, 
All right. He, <coughs> in verse 4, speaks about this feeling that he has of being banished from your sight. So in the midst of being overcome, of drowning, he's also thinking about the idea of being banished and cut off from God's presence. Because ultimately, that's even worse than physical death. Now, he says he's been banished from his sight. Clearly, he hasn't. Because we've already established he can't flee from the presence of the Lord. He can't. But this is what he thinks. This is how he feels about it, right? And so we get to uh, verse 6. It says, I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. He's literally on the bottom of the sea. All the way at the bottom. Crying out. And here's what happens. Right? We look at this. He's got these physical, spiritual distance from God that we see with him being on the bottom of the sea. Jonah, and look, no pun intended, but pun intended. Jonah's literally at rock bottom. That's literally what he is. He's at the bottom of the sea with that, that rock sand base there, and he's literally at rock bottom. He has nowhere to go. He has nothing to do. He's isolated. He's alone. He's by himself. He's surrounded by darkness. He's moments away from death because he's drowning and what does he do? He calls out to the Lord. He calls out to the Lord. The sailors told him to cry out to God in 1-6, but he refused. What's the difference? Why now instead of then? I think it's a great question, but what does he do? God, God appears to turn the pressure up a little bit. If you notice, it says he called out in my distress. So maybe as he was napping on the boat, during this storm, he wasn't really feeling distressed. Maybe that's a possibility because everybody else was feeling the effects, but he was just taking a nap. But now, things are getting real. <laughs> They're getting real. He's this close to death. He's becoming further separated from God in these moments, and he cries out. I guess that storm at the beginning wasn't quite enough to get Jonah to return to him. So he added to the situation. And the situation becomes all the more intense, all the more dire, all the more hopeless. I would suggest and surmise that you and I have probably had moments in our lives that we would look at and say, these were my rock bottom moments. These were the moments I feel like that I had nowhere to go. Because guess what? This play on words with up and down, when you're at rock bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. There's nowhere to go but up. And that's what he does. You notice when it says that he calls out, there's several times he speaks of God's holy temple. And so he's talking about praying to the God that is in heaven, the highest heavens to the lowest lows where he's at. He can't get any further. And he prays. And he prays. We've all had those rock bottom moments that our, where our only response was to cry out to God because he was the only one that could resolve our situation. We finally got to the point where we recognized that we can't do it on our own, and that's what Jonah finally recognizes. I can't do it on my own. And so verse 1 tells us that he prays. So what does he include in his prayer? What's, his, what's the content of his prayer? And so as we walk through this, I'm going to tell you there's a lot of sub points, but you'll be okay, all right? I'm going to move through it quick. But here's the thing. You'll probably notice many of these things we see in Jonah's prayer are things that you or I may have thought about or prayed when we came to God for salvation ourselves. You might recognize some of these things. And so here's the first thing 
Uh, I'm going to verse three. The first thing is that Jonah recognizes God's hand in his life. If you read verse three, you threw me into the depths of the sea, into the heart of the seas, all your breakers, your billows swept over me. Well, in chapter one, who does it say threw him into the sea? It says the sailors threw him into the sea. But what does Jonah recognize here? That it was God all along. He recognizes God's hand in this situation, that it wasn't just about the sailors. And so he acknowledges that here. Your breakers, your billows. He acknowledges that God's the one in charge of, of the sea and of the water and of all of those things. That he hadn't escaped God's presence after all. And that God was behind this plan to save, to save him. And so for you and I, sometimes it's obvious to us when we see God at work in our lives. Other times it's not, and it takes time to recognize it. But when we come to him to be saved, we need to recognize that he's been there all along. He's been there all along. Another thing that, that Jonah recognizes and acknowledges in his prayer is that he doesn't want to be banished from God's presence. In verse 4, as he tries to flee God's presence, um, in, in chapter 1, he recognizes in verse 4, I said, I've been banished from your sight. And here he looks at this as a bad thing. So God has done some work on his heart a little bit. He recognizes this is bad. I don't want to be banished from your presence. It's the worst possible thing that could happen. And yet, in chapter one, he was trying to do the opposite, flee from God's presence. He didn't want to be there. Now he feels like he's been, he feels like he's been banished from God's sight and his presence, and he doesn't like it. And what's his response? To look towards his holy temple where God dwells. Avoid God's presence in chapter one. The only place, the only thing I can do is look to God's presence in chapter two. There's a shift. He recognizes he doesn't want to be banished, right? When he's in the belly of the fish, Jonah is under God's judgment. And the absolute worst part of being under God's judgment is to be banished from God's sight and his presence. It's a terrible place to be. And for those that never call on the Lord for salvation, eternity in hell is just that. Being absent from God's presence. Being banished from it with no hope of ever being present with God again. On the flip side, being in God's presence is the safest, most beautiful place you can be. The safest, most beautiful place you can be in the presence of the Lord. And he begins to recognize that in verse 4. And then another thing that we notice, I'm skipping to verse 7. 5 and 6 are really good descriptions of his, his uh, situation. So we go to verse 7. He recognizes God's past faithfulness. Okay, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. So verse 7 says he remembers the Lord, and we see that in a couple of different ways. As a matter of fact, Jonah references at least one psalm in every verse of this prayer. A minimum of one psalm in every verse of this prayer. Jonah knew the scriptures. He knew them. He was reminded of them. He remembered them. He remembered God's faithfulness. And some of these passages in Psalms are dealing with David and his situation. And he remembered David's prayer. He remembered God's response. He remembered the scriptures. This passage in verse 7 quotes three, Psalms three times. Psalm 77 verse 11, he'll remember the Lord's works. Psalm 143 verse 5, he'll remember the days of old and reflect on the work of his hands. And then in Psalm 11:4, that the Lord is in his holy temple, which is in heaven. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. 
See, Jonah remembers the scriptures. He remembers how God has blessed the the previous folks, including people like David that wrote these psalms. He also remembers how God has blessed him through previous prophecies to Jeroboam. And I think to some degree, he's remembering now how God has sustained him to this point in the story. To this point in his life, God has sustained him every step of the way because he should have been dead by now. And he wasn't. God sustained him every step of the way. He recognized that. And so why is it important to remember what God has done? Well, it reminds us of God's faithfulness. It reminds us that he's faithful. It reminds us that he has our best interest at heart, right? I'm reminded of Genesis 50. Joseph is speaking to his brothers. What you intended for harm, God intended for good. It reminds us he has our best interest. It reminds us that we serve a God of miracles, a God of impossible. And with that, we know we can come to him with anything in any situation and know that he'll take care of it. It's good to remember these things. I didn't even have this in my notes, but I used it in the first service because it's what God brought to mind. So I want to give you an example of this, just about that idea of serving a God of miracles. I would venture to say many of us in this room have had some near-death experiences. Some of yours are crazier than others, all right? As a matter of fact, most of them are probably even crazier than the one I'm going to tell you, okay? I think my parents know this one. Um, if not, we'll, we'll see. So, uh, so I was in high school. I was on my way home probably, I don't know, uh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and uh, I'm driving down 270, and surprise, surprise, this was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and guess what? Construction on 270, right? Some things don't change, no matter the years. And so uh, I'm driving between Lindbergh and uh, McDonald Boulevard, right out here down 270, and going that direction. And uh, there's a, a, a concrete median, like temporary median on this side, which is never there. You drive down there now, there's not there. It just goes over into the grass and the fence and all of that. And so I'm driving, and I fell asleep. All right? Some of y'all can relate to this. And so I fell asleep. I, was, I dozed off. And what, what woke me up? When my car hit the median. That's what woke me up. And yet, when I woke up, I was still driving. (laughs) The car didn't stop. I didn't hit it hard enough. And so I pulled over on the side of the road. Not a single scratch on the car. The only damage to the car was the front right passenger hubcap flew off. Because the hubcap stuck out enough that it was the only thing that hit the median. Seriously? How? There's no way. But we serve a God that says there is a way. So, like, I know that experience is probably something minor compared to something many of you have gone through, but God, God protected me, and he's done that for each one of you in his own ways. It's important to remember what he has done. He is a God of impossible. Think about that in light of relationships that you have. Your best relationships, the people that you trust the absolute most, are the ones that have proven to you over time that they have your back. The people that have proven to you time and time again that they are there for you. The ones that have proven their love and their care for you in the hills and in the valleys. And God is more worthy of our trust than even them. As the only one 
who has legitimately been there for you and for me through the thick and the thin. And so when we approach the Lord in prayer, we need to remember his faithfulness, and Jonah does that here. Another thing that we, we recognize, he recognizes here, and we see it in verses 2 and 7, is he recognizes that God actually hears his prayers. And we see this in verse 2, I, called, or, uh, I cried out, you heard my voice. In verse 7, my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. So he's acknowledging that my prayer actually made it to your ears. That God hears our prayers. This God that has his hand in everything to this point cares enough about you and me to actually listen to us to actually hear our prayers. And notice there is a difference between hearing and listening. My wife will tell you I have a problem with one of the two, okay? I can hear somebody speaking to me, but if I can't repeat anything that they said, I didn't listen. God both hears and listens to us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. The God of the universe, the one that created all things, the one that has authority over all things, including the fish, by the way, that obeys him when he's told to swallow him and obeys him again when he's told to vomit Jonah ashore. That God that even has authority over them listens when you or I speak. What love, compassion, and care he has for his people, like a shepherd over his flock. And we see this in verse 7, that his prayer came to him in his holy temple in heaven, as Psalm 11.4 tells us. In verse 8, he picks up another thing in his prayer. He recognizes the worthlessness of idols in verse 8. He recognizes the worthlessness of idols in verse 8. Jonah says that idols do not save. Now, some folks think that he's referencing the sailors from the boat because he knows that they've prayed to their gods and their idols. And so some folks think that he's referencing them um, because Jonah obviously doesn't know that they worship the Lord now because when that happened, he was already overboard, all right? So he doesn't actually know this information. So some folks believe that. Um, there are other folks that simply think that, uh, that Jonah is making these statements for whoever's going to read this in the future, that it would be uh, a statement written to the Israelites to warn them. Um, see, when life is stripped of everything that's worldly, of every worldly thing that gives us a sense of happiness, when life is stripped of everything that clouds our thoughts and desires and diminishes our need to obey the Lord, when God strips us of those things, we then see that the Lord is the most important thing. Uh, the late Tim Keller defined it this way. He said, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts. If I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. What is it that gives your life meaning and value? Because if it's anything other than God, it's an idol. That's got to be where the supreme meaning and value of your life comes from. And as we continue in verse 8, we see that by cherishing idols, what does it say? It says, you abandon their faithful love. This word for faithful love here is the Hebrew word hesed, which is God's loyal covenant love to his people. His covenant love, his faithful mercy and so to worship idols is to miss out on God's covenant love that he desires to share with all people. These other things that vie for our commitment and focus aren't worth it and are in contrast, contrast to the first commandment to have no other gods before him. And so in light of these, in light of these, Jonah says, 
idols are worthless, and then he also recognizes that God wants our commitment, and we read that in verse 9. And so when he speaks about making a sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving and fulfilling what he has vowed, he's saying that I understand that God wants my commitment. It's not a, I'm going to do this once in a while. See, this prayer, this whole prayer is based on an attitude of thankfulness from Jonah. An attitude of thankfulness. And an attitude of thankfulness manifests, manifests itself in action to the Lord. See, we're truly thankful and we're truly, truly thankful for what God has done for us. We respond by doing things in return. And that's what we see. See, as Jesus reminds us multiple times, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commands, right? And so when Jonah says here that he's going to fulfill what he has vowed, most folks think he's saying he's going to do and go anywhere that God sends him, even Nineveh. What does that show? Obedience to the Lord. If you love me, you will obey my commands. So it's a sign. Following Jesus, it's a lifelong commitment, not a one-time action. So are you committed to the Lord? And the last thing I want to point out here is that he recognizes God's the only one that can save him. And he mentions this in verse 2, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9. It's all over the chapter, okay? God's the only one that can save him, the only one. In verse 9, Jonah says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Revelation 7.10 says the same thing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Notice, though, it isn't until after Jonas commits to the Lord that he's going to do what he says and acknowledges that God is the only source of salvation. After he does those two things is when God spits him out of the fish. See, God rescued him. God saved him after he acknowledged those specific things. When he committed to him and said, you are the only thing. You're my source of salvation. When he acknowledged that, God saved him. It's important to notice the sequence of events there. And so, God is the author of salvation, the God that commands the fish to spit him out. God saves him upon his recognition. God's the only one. See, Jonah recognizes God as the only source of salvation. Let's go back to 117. And you're going to see these ideas of salvation throughout the entire chapter. Back to 117. You see anything there that reminds us of God's plan to salvation? It's right there. It's right there, right? Spending three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. In Matthew 12, verse 40, it says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. See, after spending three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jonah was saved. And after Jesus died and was buried, he spent three days and nights in the heart of the earth. And when he rose, we could be saved. Now, I want to take a moment. I want to look at some of the similarities between Jonah and Jesus for a moment. Uh, in full disclosure, I took this list from somebody else, all right? Just telling you. I didn't create it on my own. I took it from somebody else, all right? Uh, and so here's what he says. Jonah and Jesus can be compared favorably in many ways. Jesus did perfectly what Jonah also, if temporarily, accomplished. Both were from Galilee. Jonah struggled with his call to preach. Jesus struggled to do the will of the Father as he calls out, if there's another way, take this from me. 
Both preached God's message of judgment and reconciliation to the marginalized and the sinner. Both chose death forsaken by others. Both bore and removed the consequences of sin from others. Both caused the storm to cease after sleeping through it. Um, And he says, Jonah through repentance, which I'll, I'll touch on in just a minute, and Jesus through his divinity. Jonah entered the jaws of the fish. Jesus entered the jaws of the grave. Both were kept for three days. Both were raised up again by God the Father. Jonah's obedience afterwards in preaching led to the conversion of a great city. And Jesus' obedience led to the conversion of many cultures around the entire world. You see the connection. This this is about the gospel. It's about salvation. It's what it's about. The one thing we truly need, salvation, is only found in God and not anywhere else. So when Jonah prays from the depths of the sea, he's praying to God in his holy temple, which I think it really is interesting. And I mentioned this before, that chapter one, he's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, but the temple is thought to be where his presence was. And so Jonah was trying to return to be in God's presence. And while we know that God was present all along, what this does is it shows some change in his heart to recognize he needs to be in God's presence. Now, one element of his prayer that is up for debate is whether or not he actually repents, okay? And I'm not here to tell you the answer, all right? That, that part is up for debate. Even amongst Southern Baptists, it's up for debate. Um, there are some that think that his actions of uh, sacrifices in his vow show repentance. There are others that say he never actually admits to doing anything wrong. Um, and so it comes off both ways. But here's what we do know. We know that Jonah, Jonah confesses his need for God and the recognition of God as the only means of salvation. We know that. We know that God saves him. Okay? And we know for a couple of reasons. One, because this story isn't about Jonah, it's about God. And two, Because God's capacity to forgive is greater than your and my capacity to sin. His capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. And so we got to remember when God saves us that our hearts are still going to desire other things. Because Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. And who can understand it? See, our heart is still going to try to deceive us. It's still going to try to do what it wants to do even when God saves us and God is our focus in life. And so God transforms us into uh, the image of his son. He makes us like him. He continues to sink our hearts with his as long as we're here on earth. And so in his prayer, Jonah recognizes a lot of things, but what he ends by acknowledging is that God is the author of salvation, that there is no salvation in anyone or anything else. So the last question here is, how does God respond to his prayer? So, God is consistent in his response uh, to prayer. So the first thing is in verse two. By the way, in my, like, I read this and I'm like, I don't know, shouldn't he hear the voice before he answers the voice? But the way that it's written in verse two uh, says he answered first and then says he heard. So that's the order I'm going in, okay? Um, uh, it says God answers us. And so his response to prayer was he answers us. And so Jonah here says that God answers him in verse 2. Here's the thing. God doesn't always answer us how we want him to. And we need to be reminded of that. But he does answer. He may not do things the way we think he should, but he does answer. 
Let's take Jonah, for example. He cries out to the Lord from the depths of the sea, and God answers his prayer by sending a giant smelly fish to swallow him and allows Jonah to stay there for three days and three nights. You think that was what Jonah's thought was when he was calling out to be saved? Hey, can you do this my way? God's like, what have you done my way? Like, <laughs> no, right? He doesn't always do it the way that we want, but he does answer. He does answer. And because he sustains us, because he is in control, we have to humbly submit to how he wants to do it. See, he doesn't immediately transfer Jonah from the world's most dire situation into a great situation. Did you know that? You notice that? He doesn't take him from the depths of the sea when he cries out and puts him immediately onto dry land. He doesn't do that. He doesn't put him in some palace somewhere where he's all of a sudden rich and has authority and all these things. He doesn't do those things. He actually moves him from one tough situation to another. And tough is very much an understatement, by the way. Situation, right? But what he did do was he saved his life through his mercy. See, God may sometimes answer us by allowing us to stay where we are for a season. Sometimes that's how he answers us. But he still answers and he still has a plan. The second thing that we see is God's response is that he hears our voice. See, this is significant. Jonah was literally as far away as he could possibly be, the lowest of the lows, the bottom of the sea, crying out to the highest heights where God is, and God still heard his prayer. Still heard it. Think about all the stuff that was in between them. It traveled. It went through. He still heard it, right? At the bottom of the sea, all the way up to where God was, where Psalm 11 tells us that the holy temple in heaven. See, this God, and I mentioned this earlier, and it's still vital, this God that commands the wind and the waves to stir up, and they do, this God that commands a fish and appoints a fish to swallow Jonah, this God that tells a donkey to speak, this God that is sovereign over all things sees you and I of worthy of his time. And he hears us and he listens to us. Rest assured that any prayer that you offer, God will hear. God will hear, no matter what situation you find yourself in. And the last thing, which I know that's a key word some people are listening for, last thing, here we go, all right, is that God saves us. That's his response. When we call out to be saved, he saves us. He's faithful. This is the heart of the book of Jonah, that God alone can save. That God saves, and, and, and by the way, God saves through unconventional means, right? For Jonah, he physically saves him by allowing him to be in the belly of a fish for three days and be vomited onto the shore. For us, it's by God sending Jesus to take our place, to have the fullness of God's wrath rest on him before being raised on the third day. This is a prayer of thankfulness and rescue. Thankfulness that God has physically saved him from drowning and the future of God saving him from eternal judgment. You see, Jonah experienced judgment for his sin. Jesus experienced judgment for our sin. Jonah was alive after three days in the fish and Jesus was alive after three days in the grave. See, this vivid imagery of Jonah in the whale is a picture of salvation. And let me, let me explain this a little further. The word fish is mentioned three times. 117, 2-1, In one seventeen, it's it's a it's a masculine term. Do you know what it is in the other two? Feminine term. And the idea here is that Jonah is being born again, that he's being given new life, that he's being birthed as he's being spit out on the shore. 
It's a picture of new life. It's a picture of being born again. This whole thing is about salvation, y'all. It's about the gospel. It's what this whole passage is about. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And that's what this is a picture of. And so we have this new life in Jesus. So Jonah prays, he thanks God for saving him, and he closes out by acknowledging God's the only one who could. But I want to make sure I point out that salvation is just the beginning of the work God will do in your heart and in your life. We don't immediately begin to see everything how God does or have his heart for everything. We see that over the next two chapters with Jonah. God's still working on him. God's still working on him. And God will continue to work on us as well. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a continuing work God's going to keep doing. And he does it in Jonah as well. Last two things are takeaways that we'll walk through quickly. Uh, Two things that I would encourage you all to consider today. One, make sure you pray no matter your circumstances. One thing we see is you can never be too far gone for God to draw you in. You can never be so bad that God refuses to hear your cries and your prayers. There's never a situation where God ignores the genuine prayers of his most prized creation. And so when you're at your rock bottom, God's there with you and he hears you. And the other is simply to call out to the Lord for salvation. See, that's what this passage is about. That's what this book is about. Recognizing our need to be saved and that there's only one way to be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And so as we close, uh, we're going to pray. And here's what I would like to ask you to do. I'd like to ask you to bow your head and go ahead and do that now. Um, Is there something you've been trying to avoid talking to the Lord about that you need to talk to him about today? See, Jonah was trying to avoid speaking to the Lord. He doesn't even pray at all in chapter 1, not until the beginning of chapter 2. Is there something you have been avoiding trying to talk to God about? Here's the thing. He already knows, so feel free to talk to him about it. Have you ever called upon the Lord to save you? If not, I pray today is that day because he's the only source of salvation. And I pray that you find comfort in knowing that no matter your situation, you're not too far gone. Jonah is proof of that. So I'm going to pray for us. And after the prayer is over, I want to ask that you use this time however you need to. If you need to approach uh, to come up to the steps and and pray, do that. Um, uh, Don and Jenny uh, will be up here uh, to pray with you as well as myself if you need us. Um, If you want to stand and sing, stand and sing. If you want to sit and just be in the presence of the Lord, uh, that I'd encourage you to do that as well. God, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that you love us, that you care for us enough to offer us this picture. God, we know that even when we pray, in Matthew 6, it tells us it's less about the amount of words and how big the words are we used and more about our hearts. And so God, I pray that our hearts come to you purely today. So Lord, do what you want to do and use this time for however you want it to be used. It's in the name of Jesus I pray, amen.